Let me ask you this question. Have you ever received a task or instruction from someone of authority over you that you did not want to do? Anyone ever been there? Okay. There's several different reactions that we have to this. Some of us, uh, you know, they, they look at when it's due and they plan out and they work on it a little bit each day, just, you know, kind of whittle it away. And there's some of us that get it done right away just so we don't have to think about it anymore and it's over and done with. And now that I'm done talking about the crazy people, some of us wait to the very last minute and figure out, is there a way to get out of this? Is there a way that we wouldn't have to do this, right? And we kind of procrastinate, procrastinate and hold it at the end. And, and if we can't get out of it, then we just go ahead and do it. We live, in, uh, we live down in Riverview. We have a house down there. And uh, our homeowners association uh, wants us to make sure that our lawn is cut and our, it's trimmed and, and weeded and all that kind of stuff. Now, I've heard that if you don't do that, you're going to get a letter from the homeowners association asking why that's not been done and could you please attend to that. I mean, I've heard that those come in theory, not that I've received any of those over my 13 years living there, one or two, but... <clears throat> Uh, and and they, they take a picture of your yard, and you can kind of make it out. You're like, yeah, that's totally my yard. I do need to take care of that. Something about me, though, I, I can't stand yard work. I, I just, I'm not good at it. I'm the guy who, when, you know, killing weeds, buys the grass and weed killer and kills everything around it on accident. I'm just that person. I'm not the one who can look at something and go, you know, this plant here and this plant here and this there, and it look wonderful. I'm just not, I have a deep appreciation for those that can do that, but... That's not me, and I don't love cutting the grass and trimming and all that. Fortunately, this time in my life, I have two young men in my house. Uh, one is a sophomore and one is a junior, and they don't like landscaping either, but they're fur further down the food chain. So I, I get to instruct them on what they're supposed to do and making sure that the lawn is cut uh, and, and mowed and the, the grass and it's the trimmings, all that is done, and being gracious, I actually pay them to do this. Now, they should do it because they're part of my house and, and this is their, you know, their choice, but I pay them to do this and it's become really kind of a cool thing. They need money, I need my grass cut, I don't wanna do it, I have money, and so I can pay them to do that. And it worked out really well for a couple weeks because their need for money started to diminish because they really weren't spending on it on anything. So they were like, mm, yeah, I don't really wanna mow the lawn, Dad. So we had a little meeting, the three of us, and we sat down and we said, so here's the deal. You're mowing the lawn. This is non-negotiable. In fact, every week I'll tell you which day the lawn needs to be cut. And so, for example, I'll say, the lawn needs to be cut by Wednesday. If the lawn is indeed mowed by Wednesday, I will pay you. If on Thursday morning the lawn is not mowed, you don't have use of my internet, you don't have use of those devices you carry around that I call my phones, you don't have use of the, you know, your, my PS4, you don't have use of my TV, you don't have use of my cars until that lawn is cut, and I'm not paying you. So it's been great. All of a sudden, you know, they realized, okay, the Father's will is going to get done. Yeah? Right? What the Father wants done at the house is, is actually going to be accomplished. Now, it's kind of humorous because... I like to procrastinate myself, but I struggle with it with other people at times. And so my boys, obviously, if it's due on Wednesday and it has to be cut on Wednesday, the sun is setting on Wednesday and they are just making their way out into the yard. Now this is fine in some regards, but it happens to rain a lot in Florida. 
And so what, what I do is I'll come up to him on Monday and say, hey, we have a sunny day today. It's amazing. You could probably get this yard done in 30 to 45 minutes and be done. It'd be great. Yeah, but Dad, it's not, it's not due to Wednesday. I'm like, well, you know, pull out those little handheld devices and look up the weather. Dad, it's only an 80% chance of rain in the next two days. I'm like, that's Florida speak for it's going to rain. It's guaranteed it's going to happen. And inevitably, every week, they're out there because they're mowing the lawn while it's raining. Now, the Father's will is going to get done. The question is, is the one doing it going to enjoy the process and be rewarded for the process, or are they going to struggle in the process? We're going to take a look at a book today, a chapter uh, in a book in the Old Testament, where uh, the main character was asked to do a task, and he struggled with it. He had a hard time with it. And it's a book that I've been reading over the last couple weeks, um, over and over, and been enjoying and learning so much about. And I want to share with you just some key principles that I found in the first chapter. So will you pray with me, and we'll talk about this together. Father God, it is so good to be in your house this morning, uh, to spend some time worshiping you and singing about your amazing love. Uh, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to understand it. I pray that you would give us clarity. I pray that you would move me aside and speak through your word the things you want said. Uh, thank you, God, for, for loving us. Thank you, God, for uh, inviting us into your work. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would challenge us. I, I pray that you would uh, move in our hearts this morning and point out the things that we need to rearrange in our life or encourage us in the things that we're, we're running after. Uh, Lord, we love you. It's in your precious and holy name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. In uh, the book of Jonah, uh, chapter 1, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. I love that phrase. The, the word of the Lord has come to Jonah. Uh, God has spoken. This is a book, this is a prophecy book, and, and in it, it starts off very similar to other prophecies books. The word of the Lord came to. I, I just started thinking about that phrase a little bit. The word of the Lord has come. Think about it. The God of the universe has spoken. He spoke directly to Jonah. What an awesome event. What an awesome divine event. What an honor to receive directly God's word. Hey, Jonah, this is what I want you to do. And yet there's so much tension in this passage because it is exactly what Jonah does not want to do. You see, when the word of the Lord speaks and, and we hear it, all of a sudden, well, now we're responsible for it. And it puts Jonah in this awkward place. Yeah, I heard, I heard from God's word, but now I'm responsible to do what God's word says. And it's not what I want to do. For to receive the word of the Lord is to be responsible for the word of the Lord. Think of James chapter 1, verse 22. Right? We're not supposed to be just hearers of the word, but we're supposed to do what it says. We're supposed to follow it. And so Jonah wasn't supposed to just hear this. He was supposed to act upon it, to act upon God's will. 
God's going to invite us into his work. And we're going to see God doing this for Jonah. He's inviting him into, telling him what he wants him to do. And the question is, are you listening as God speaks? Are you listening as God speaks? He's going to invite us into his work. He's going to tell us what he wants us to do. But are you listening as God speaks? And you might think, well, okay, that's the Old Testament. He spoke directly to his prophet. How does he do that today? Well, I think there's multiple ways that God speaks to us today. For some, it's in our quiet times, whether we sit in front of our, in our living room with our Bible open and we're studying, and in that quietness, God is speaking to our hearts about what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live, how he wants us to act. For others, it might be during uh, exercise while they're running or while they're walking that uh, they just kind of have this prayer time going on with God, and God speaks to, him, speaks to them through that. I believe God speaks to us through his word directly. We can know what God wants in our lives because of his word. It's written down for us and how he wants us to live and how he wants us to act. I think God speaks through other believers. He speaks through uh, gathering around God's word and other believers speaking into each other's lives and encouraging one another and challenging one another and pushing one another to serve and to follow after God and to run after him. Let me ask this question a different way. Are the main influences in your life, the main people that you have speaking into your life, are they following passionately after Jesus? Are they running passionately after Jesus? Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of the fools will suffer harm. I was looking at a little internet clip from uh, Pastor uh, Craig Grishel from the Life Church. He says this, Show me who you're running with, and I'll show you who you're becoming. Show me who you're running with, and I'll show you who you're becoming. If you want to make better decisions, hang out with wiser people. Where's the place that you have where other believers are speaking into your life and encouraging you and challenging you and walking alongside of you? Man, if you've been here at Baylife for any length of time, you know that the place that that happens here is in life groups. And maybe the only reason you came this morning is just to hear this. It's time. It's time for you to get into a life group. It's time for you to allow God to speak to you to, through other believers and through studying his word. In fact, if you're wondering how to do that, we have an event coming up next week. It's the life group cru cruise. It's 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. There's some really fun stuff going on. There's food, there's hors d'oeuvres, there's drinks, there's door prizes and all that. But Hold on, push all that over there, that's stuff. It's a chance for you to find your community, to find a place to plug into, to study God's word together, to have someone else speak into your life and to help you move forward in, in your relationship with Jesus. There's something that happens when there's people that are passionate about following Jesus and they're meeting together and challenging one another, encouraging one another and moving forward. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. An opportunity to, to jump into one of those groups. There will be uh, an opportunity in them to find out, you know, hey, do I like, do, could, could I hang out with these people? Could I enjoy these people? Uh, would I love for them to be speaking into my life? Uh, you'll have a chance to connect with either a men's group, a, a ladies' group, a home life group. Um, some, if you're brand new, wondering about Jesus, there's an alpha group that you could check out uh, where we'd love to hear some of the things that you think as well and, and, and talk through uh, what God's doing and what God says. Uh, but don't let that pass you by. So this word of the Lord, it comes to Jonah. Jonah's name actually means dove, and when we think of dove, we think of a symbol of peace, 
And yet, what we're finding out about Jonah is Jonah doesn't want peace to come to this other nation. It's kind of more like a hawk. Uh, but a, do- a dove is a home-loving bird, and this one actually fits Jonah very well. He loves his own nation and his own people. And the problem is it excludes everyone else. Uh, Jonah has this fierce and narrow nationalism that's the key to his stubborn disobedience. His country comes before what God's asking him to do. Uh, The book of Jonah is concerned primarily with Jonah's mission to Nineveh, to the Assyrian people, to a nation not his own. Jonah goes down in history as uh, his nickname is the Bitter Prophet, which is what he is known known by basically throughout time, the bitter prophet. But it's interesting, before he became the bitter prophet, he was a hometown hero. He was a hero in his homeland. Uh, You kind of get that story or pick up that story in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14. There's four verses there that talk about Jonah. It's 23 to 27. And it's pretty interesting. In that time, when you're reading through the book of Kings, what you know is you're looking at uh, Israel as a divided kingdom. There's two kingdoms going on. There's the north kingdom, and then there's the south kingdom. And they each have different kings who are over top of them. God brought prophets that spoke to the different kingdoms at different times. Jonah is in the north. Now, the the north had 19 kings overall, and the south had 20 kings overall. And it's pretty interesting. When you read through it, that's the confusing part. You're like, which king am I talking about? Which kingdom am I talking about? Who, who is this? And so the north is actually named Israel in the Bible, and the south is Judah uh, in the Bible. Now, when you look at the northern kingdom, you know that pretty much if you're reading about a northern king, you're reading about a guy, uh, a, a bad king. Uh, there were zero good kings in the north. And when you're reading about one of the southern kings, you probably have more than, you, you have more than a 50% chance of saying it's a bad king, if you don't know. But there are eight, eight kings that are good out of 20, so that's not a really great ratio. But when you look at it and you see the course of history and how that works, uh, Israel disappears and, and, and gets taken into captivity first. They had no good leaders, no leaders that ran after the Lord. And so their time frame was a lot shorter than Judah, where Judah had eight kings that followed after God passionately, and so they survived longer uh, than, than Israel in that. Well, this is King Jeroboam is, uh, the second, uh, was the king that was king around the time of Jonah. Now, he's a northern king, so we know he is not good, right? He's not following after the Lord. Uh, in fact, here's what he's doing. He's looking down and he's going, listen, the place of worship is down there in Jerusalem, but if all my people go down there, well, they'll join in unity with the brothers that, that are down there and we'll become one nation. I'll lose my kingdom. That's not a good thing for me. So instead of sending my people down to Jerusalem to worship, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up high places for them to worship up here. And instead of, you know, worshiping Yahweh that would connect us together, I'm going to ask that they worship Baal. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, it's a covenant theology. And when you, when you see that, when there's a covenant where if they obey God, right, he brings them blessing. If they disobey God, eventually uh, he brings them doom. And the prophet's role in this whole thing is to go, hey... We're deviating from what God wants us to do. Hey, come back to the Lord. And so you see that in the prophecy books as you look through the Old Testament. And so here is the northern kingdom, and they are not following after the Lord because their leader is leading them away from God. 
And he's saying, listen, instead of going to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem, let's worship the high places and let's worship other gods so that we stay our own nation. And what's happening to them is their borders are shrinking. The other nations are coming and they're attacking the outsides of their borders. And all of a sudden their landmass is starting to go down and go down and go down. And it's well-deserved, right? Because they are no longer running after the Lord. And so they're losing all this ground. And Jonah pops to the scene and says, hey, I have a word from the Lord. God is going to restore our borders. He's going to increase our land back to the promised land, back to where it was, and he's going to restore us. And the people were like, yes, I love that message. And God does that. The nation hadn't changed. The nation hadn't turned. Jeroboam's still leading them astray. But God allows them to restore their borders. And so this is a hometown hero prophecy. God moves on their behalf, sees their situation. And even though they're not fully turning back to him, he does something to their benefit. It's unmerited favor, or another word for this, this is grace. This is unbelievable grace to the nation of Israel that he is restoring their borders even when they're turning their back on him. And he's reminding them again, this is how much I love you. And the, the, the northern kingdom is like, yes, right? God is all, his grace is amazing. That is awesome. But then he comes to Jonah and he goes, listen, I know you, pro- you talked about grace to your people. Now I want you to go and I want you to talk to these people. And Jonah goes, whoa, hold on a second. I'm okay singing about your amazing love that runs after me and chases me down mountains and shows me all this wonderful stuff and pursues me. And I'd love to talk about that, but that guy, are you kidding me? Do you know him? Do you know what he's done? That guy. Jonah had a hard time with this. And I think we can too. We love God's grace when it's given to us. We love God's grace when it's given to us. We come and we sing and and we, oh man, his unrelenting love, right? He pursues me. He runs after me. Total truth. We love that. But then God goes, hey, I'd like to involve you in this person's life so that he may know my grace too. And we can struggle to extend it to others. We can struggle when we got to extend it to others. This lesson is repeated throughout Jonah's life. It had to be because he's kind of a slow learner. Uh, Look at verse 3, the task here. The task was arise, go, and call out. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Do you really want to hear from the Lord? God's going to sometimes give us tasks that we don't want to do. I believe God's going to give us tasks sometimes that we don't even want to see done, if we're honest. Jonah is told to get up and go, and Jonah gets up and runs away. In the Hebrew, there is such a sharp contrast that it just pulls right out. Get up and go, get up and fled. And he runs away. He is avoiding the call. He understands the radical nature of the call, 
In fact, when he's talking to God in chapter 4, he's like, uh, this is why I was so quick to run. I knew what you were going to do. I knew what you were going to do. Uh, the responses for Jonah running can really be explained in his conversation with God in chapter 4. But to truly understand that, you really have to understand some of the history of the Assyrians and who they were. Uh, it was one of the most hated nations in antiquity. Uh, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And this is uh, one of Israel's worst enemies. Uh, they earned it. Uh, they earned their reputation in history. Uh, they, had, uh, they had technology that was beyond what other nations had. And so they were, were able to win battles. They had iron swords. They had heavy bows. They had long lances. They had battering rams. They had fortresses on wheels. They had metal breastplates. They had shields. They had helmets. Those were a few examples of their superior equipment at the time. But they also did a lot in terms of some psychological type of warfare. What would happen is when they would defeat a city or uh, defeat a foe, they would come in and they would take the soldiers and some of the non-combatants and they would um, cut off their noses, cut off their ears, cut off other parts. Uh, they would impale them. And then they would parade them to the next city that they were going to. And they would surround the city and they would say, listen, you can stay shut up in that city. That's fine. We're going to wait you out. We're eventually going to win. And when we win, if you make us go through some work, this is what's going to happen to you. We're going to do the same thing to you. However, you could open your city now and just, you know, go a little bit easier. Not much, but a little bit easier for you. And so they would go to these cities. And we don't find out about this really through other cultures. We find out about this from the Assyrians themselves. Archaeologists have dug up different palaces and been able to see the drawings and the battles that have taken place. In fact, when many years later they eventually come in and take over the northern kingdom, they press all the way down into the southern kingdom and the last city they get to is Lachish. Um, and they... They destroy that city. And that city is one of the cities, and, and the events that happened there is one of the drawings that they found uh, on these palaces and kind of gives us a glimpse of what kind of people they were and how they acted. A terrible, terrible enemy. It's interesting, uh, he has no desire to take place, to, to, to be a part of taking place of their reconciliation of their forgiveness. He, he doesn't argue with God. He just gets up and he runs away. Uh, the part that he struggled with was eventually what his message would be in chapter 3, where he comes into the city and eventually God has him accomplish this. And he comes in the city and says, hey, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. He would be fine with, hey, you're going to be destroyed. It was that 40 days because he knew that they could relent and that God might relent and give them grace. And that's where he struggled with. And so he gets up and he leaves for Tarshish. Well, why does he go there? Uh, Tarshish was a Phoenician city in southern Spain. And at that time in the world, it was the, the most westerly city that uh, it was kind of the end of the, end of the earth, so to speak. And so he's trying to escape God. Uh, but here's the truth. The Lord runs after and pursues his wayward children. The Lord runs after and pursues his wayward children. It's more about God's grace. It's more about uh, God's nature and his interest in our character that he pursues us. And I've been uh, around here for a while. 
I mean, I've heard some, some of your stories, and some of the people that are sitting here, I know that there's times where you, you've expressed to us, hey, I felt God's call on my life to do X, but I didn't want to do it, and my journey took me 10, 15, 12 years around doing all these other things, and now I'm back doing X, what God really wanted me to do. Why? Because he's pursued you, right? He's pursued uh, his way were children. It's interesting, Jonah knew the Psalms, and he knew this Psalm, Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with me in all my ways. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? There's nowhere to flee. There's nowhere to run. And yet, Jonah tries. Verse 4 says this, But the Lord hurled a great and mighty wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo into the ship uh, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. We know from the New Testament that Jesus has the power to calm the storm, right? When he was out in the boat with the disciples and he spoke to the winds and the wave, and who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? We know that God has the ability to work things together for the good of those who love him, right? And are called according to his purposes. But we should also understand that the God who can still the storm can send the storm. Can send the storm to move us. You know, uh, hurling the storm is not the uh, action of a frustrated deity who uh, wants to get after, you know, he's not throwing a tenter tantrum because his kid won't follow him. Honestly, throwing the storm indicates precision. It indicates pursuit. He's not out to punish Jonah. He's out to restore him and to turn him around to what he has for him. Uh, We sing this song, right? God pursues me. God, God runs after me. His amazing love. And do you know what you're asking, right? When you walk away and, and, and go the other route, God's going to pursue you. He's going to run after you. And sometimes it's not the storybook, oh, he carried me through. Sometimes it's the storm to get our attention. So when we sing that, know what, you, know what we're singing, right? Lord, when I walk away from you, I love the fact that you pursue me. Love the fact that you pursue me. His pursuit isn't to punish, but to restore. Let me ask you, what are the reactions here to the storm? Uh, You have the sailors. Uh, They react with fear. Uh, You have the reaction of organized religion, each one to his own God. Uh, You have the reaction of secular common sense. Let's throw everything off and let's see if we can lead our way out of this storm. You have the reaction of escapism. I'm just going to go down here and sleep. Maybe it will go away. The the missing reaction should have really come from Jonah because he was the one who had the line, the the direct line to the creator of the universe who could still the storm. Only Jonah had that understanding. The captain comes to him in verse 6. So the captain come and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the, the, the God will give you a thought to us that we might not perish. 
And they said to one another, Come, let's cast lots, so that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? Lots of questions for the guy who's causing the storm. And he said to him, them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's a clear testimony of who he was. It's a clear understanding of what his position was. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're anything like me when reading some of these sto- stories in the Old Testament or when reading in the New Testament about the Pharisees, but it's so easy for me to look at them and to be like, I can't believe Jonah. What was he thinking? I mean, this is obviously not going to work out well for him. I mean, why didn't he just get up and follow the Lord here? And, and you know, the Pharisees, I'm like, I can't believe they didn't understand. It's really easy for me to read and critique. It seems like whenever I do that, God kind of taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, what about this in your life? What about this area that I want you to be following in? What about how I want you to act? As believers, we follow and we worship the same God that Jonah did. We serve a God of holiness. Do we have purity in our thoughts and in our speech and in our actions? Uh, We serve a God of compassion. When we look at others in the world, do we extend that compassion to them? We serve a God of truth. Are we willing, when called upon, to speak truth into others' lives, even when it's unpopular? We can criticize Jonah for saying, hey, why did he go to Tarshish? When in reality, that's a lot of times where we go, what we run after. Verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, What is this you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to them, What shall we do that we might quiet down, that the storm might quiet down for us? And the sea grew even more and more tempestuous. And they said to him, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. The sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah has lost a lot of his testimony. He isn't bringing peace. As a Jew, he isn't bringing blessing to those around him. He was running from the presence of the Lord. He knew the Psalms. He knew it was madness. But he still was running. Verse 12, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew even more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. It's interesting, here in the beginning they are willing to do more for Jonah than Jonah was at the beginning of the journey for them. I think sometimes uh, unsaved people We can put believers to shame by their honesty, their sympathy, and their sacrifice. 
And so they picked Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from raging and the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to him. This was, yes, they were throwing him in, but this was still an act of faith on their part. And when the storm calmed down, could you just imagine their reaction to that? Oh, wow. Right? Here is a a man who is wayward, and yet God is going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And when he has marked him out, he's going to accomplish it through him, even kicking and screaming. The question here is this. God will accomplish his work. Will we enjoy the ride? Look at verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. When, when I was in college, I had a friend uh, who came to know the Lord his sophomore year. I transferred into my university and, as a junior. I went to Arizona State. And um, I met him, and, and we uh, became fast friends, and he told me how he came to know the Lord. He was in high school. He was just a total party kid. Uh, his parents had divorced at an early, early age, and uh, he just didn't have a male role model at all in his life. His dad had disappeared, and he was the life of the party. He was one of the star athletes. He was into everything, and he just kept running and running. He goes, I was empty, but I just kept searching for the next high, the next party, the next thing, and when I got to Arizona State, I joined the fraternities, and of course, that's all offered to me again, and so I'm running and running on that, and he goes, I sat down on one of these benches, and he goes, I just felt so empty, and I just like, all right, if there is a God, it would be great to know, and be great to know what you think, because I'm done. There's nothing here, and uh, two Campus Crusade guys sat down next to him on his bench, and uh, they were sharing their faith with him, and he was like, whoa, I just finished this conversation with God, and you guys sit down. And so he listened to them, and, and what they were saying about Jesus and, and the sacrifice he made on the cross and his grace made total sense to him, and he gave his life over to, to Christ that night, and he just, he was instantly, he was one of those instantly just changed, right? And all he thought about was, I have a friend from high school that needs this information, I mean, they just need to hear this as well. And so he got in his car, and he drove late at night, and he drove to her house. And he knocked on her door. It was about 10, 11 at night. And she answers, and she's a little surprised to see him, you know, back from school. And she's like, what are you doing here? And he goes, I had the worst testimony ever. I I fumbled through the gospel. I just was like, you know, Jesus, and he died on a cross, and he saved me. and And he could do it for you too, right? It was kind of his crescendo ending. And and he's like, I'm looking at her, and I'm just thinking, I just gave her the best news in the world. I can't wait for her to be changed, too. And she looks at me, and she goes, oh, Gil, that's so great. I've been praying for you for like five, six years that you would come to know Jesus. And he goes, I turned from so much excitement to just sadness, anger, and be like, are you kidding me? You've been praying for me for four or five, six years, and you never once thought to go, hey, Gil, let me tell you about Jesus. He said they stayed up late that night talking, and as they were talking, she kept saying things like, you know, I just I felt like I was supposed to, but I just I wasn't sure how you'd react. I, I felt like God was asking me to, but 
I was just kind of concerned that you'd make fun of me. Gil was marked out. He was going to come to know the Lord. God had invited her into that process. And she had said no. Bailiff, may we be a church when God taps us on the shoulder. When God says to you, hey, I want you to extend love to this person. Hey, I want you to do something crazy right now for this person. May we be the church that just goes, all right, yes, Lord. Whatever it is, yes is the answer. My prayer for us is that this week we would just wake up and just have a simple prayer. Lord, I'm your servant. What do you have for me today? Because God will give us the strength and the ability to walk into the good works that he's prepared for us. We just have to be willing and say, all right, doesn't make sense, but I'm going to trust you anyway, and I'm going to go where you call me to go. Let me pray for us. Father God, your love and your grace that pursues us, it is amazing. It is scandalous. In honesty, it's almost unbelievable the way that you run after us and how much you love your children. Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be. Help us to be your ambassadors. Help us to walk through the good works that you've called us to do. Give us the strength to run after you, God. It's in your precious and holy name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.